So the last uh, number of weeks, the last four weeks, uh, we've been going through this sermon series, um, trying to look at identity, to answer this question, who are we? Uh, And to do that, we've been looking through several, uh, what I've called different lenses. Um, And I told the story before about my son taking my glasses off and and wondering what these things are and explaining to him that uh, through these glasses that I wear on my face, I can see the world clearly. Uh, But the reality is for all of us that we have many lenses that that are in front of us uh, that we see the world through. Some that are things that we've decided uh, others are things that have been handed to us, but, but we see the world through these. So we're going um, um, we are going to uh, look through another lens. So three weeks ago, uh, we looked through this lens that I called the mission of God. And the mission of God was this big picture view of the overarching storyline of God uh, and how we fit into it. And if we don't see ourselves in that storyline, we can never see Uh, who we are clearly, and we can never answer this question of uh, who we are. And then two weeks ago, we zoomed in some. Uh, We looked at the mission of the ECC, or the the Evangelical Covenant Church, our denomination, uh, seeking to look through that lens and understand, uh, again, who are we as part of this church and part of this denomination, and how do we fit in uh, into that context? And then last week, Uh, we looked through the third lens of the mission of chapel uh, in the Pines. And how do we fit in there? And um, part of that was I didn't give you an answer. (laughs) I I said that you get to be a part of deciding that, uh, which I find way more exciting than someone standing up front and saying, here's who you are, uh, who's only known you for three months. Uh, But you all have been gifted. Um, You all have been given... Uh, gifts from God, and together we get to kind of decide what that looks like here. Uh, We're given some ground rules through Scripture, um, but uh, I find that exciting. So then today, uh, we're going to zoom in uh, even closer, and we're going to look at answering this question of who are we uh, through this idea of the mission of a believer. What is the mission of, of anyone who puts their faith in Jesus Christ? What are they called to do? What are they called to be uh, in this world and in their families and in in society? What does that mean for them? What is that uh, mission? So before we do that, uh, let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for this time. Uh, I thank you for uh, this church. I thank you for uh, this message that I believe you've given me to speak. I pray that it wouldn't come Uh, for my own words, but that you would give me words to speak, and that it wouldn't just fall on our ears, but it would go to our hearts. Uh, Lord, we know that uh, your Holy Spirit is in this place as we gather here, and we just ask that you would speak, that you would speak through uh, this message, that you'd speak through the scripture, and that you would reach deep into us, and that you would touch us uh, in a way that, that reaches us. Lord, we give this time to you, we ask that your will would be done. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So just last week, uh, I was able to spend three days in Monterey uh, that was at what's called a first call pastor's cohort. Uh, And basically what that is, is for our denomination, uh, pastors who are their first time being a senior pastor, they gathered us together uh, in Monterey, which is 
pretty gorgeous place. Right? Oh, darn. Um, so it was nice. They treated us well. And, and we gathered together and we were able to support each other and lift each other up. But some of the things that they had us work on is one of the nights they asked us to reflect on uh, leadership. That's what we were talking about. And they, they asked uh, us to think about someone in our own lives. Uh, and I'll ask you the same. So think about someone in your own life that you would have done anything for. That if they were to ask you to do something, um, you would have done it no questions asked. Now, maybe you all don't have uh, those people. As we reflected as pastors, there were some themes that kind of emerged. Some people talked about coaches that they've had, coaches that they were willing to, you know, um, get pushed so much harder than they would ever push themselves uh, in a sport or anything else. Uh, people talked about pastors uh, and Bear in mind, this is a group of pastors who are meeting. Uh, but they talked about pastors who in their own lives are people that supported them and pushed them and, and are the ones that said, I think God might be calling you to be a pastor. You know, they talked about those people. Now, what people didn't talk about was any of those people's like, ability to do great public speaking. Just didn't come up. Uh, they didn't talk about anyone's uh, ability to ju just be super knowledgeable and kind of wow them with their intellect. What they talked about was relationship. And what they talked about was people that had their best intentions in mind. And as I reflected, uh, I reflected on um, this guy named John Weborg, who, if I were to say that this next week at Covenant Midwinter, uh, which is our national gathering, we have 850-something churches, and the pastors get together in Chicago, uh, and I'll be there. If I were to say that there, over half the room would know who I'm talking about. He's this person who uh, was at North Park Seminary, which is in Chicago. It's the Covenant Seminary. And um, long story short, if, if our denomination had bishops, he would probably be at the top of the list. Uh, that's just the kind of person he is. But that's not why I think of him. I think of him because uh, he was a retired seminary professor who retired out to the community of Princeton, Illinois, where my last church was, uh, where his grandkids were and his children were nearby. Um, and part of being ordained in the denomination was that you're required to have a mentor. You're required to have somebody that you meet with. Uh, and I was blessed to be able to ask John if he would be my mentor. And he said yes. And then he said, but I warn you, I won't stop. See, the ordination process is like three, four years. And immediately he said, it's not going to be a four-year thing if you pick me. Uh, it's going to be longer. And, and we met together uh, at least once a month. And we would go to this little diner uh, in town. And he would order the same thing. He would order black coffee. And he would always say that's how God attended it. Uh, which I still use that line sometimes. Um, and he would order a side of bacon, which I just loved because there was something so genuine about ordering black coffee and a side of bacon. You're not pretending to be anyone that you're not if you order just a side of bacon with your coffee. You are confident in who God has made you. Right, and you're not pretending to be anything else. So, so he would order 
Uh, and plus, who doesn't like to share a side of bacon with someone else uh, over coffee? So he would order his coffee and his bacon, and, and that just reflected his, his personality. It's just, he just, he was who he was. Every time we met, there wasn't a single time uh, that he forgot to ask me about how uh, Susan was doing. There wasn't a single time that he forgot to ask me about how my kids were. Um, he didn't know me super well beforehand, but I guarantee after two meetings, he knew all of my kids' names. He knew all of my kids, um, what, what grades they were in, how old they were. Um, he knew me. And, and I wasn't, uh, there was never this feeling to him that I was just um, kind of this conglomeration of different like abilities or skills. You know, sometimes you feel like people like know you for like what you can do for them. But he wanted to know me for me and invest in me for me. And, and as I thought about this idea of somebody that you would do anything for, uh, one of the biggest things that reflected on me with him was um, that he even wanted the best for me even when it wasn't the best for him. You see what I'm saying? So he wanted... Uh, to invest in me and, and to have me grow. And eventually in that growing and, and him investing, I started feeling called to be a senior pastor. And that wasn't the necessarily the best thing for him. I was doing primarily youth ministry and his own grandkids were in the youth group. Like you could easily argue what was best for him and his family was for me to stay there. But what he encouraged was for me to follow God. And what he encouraged was for me uh, to continue to grow and, and to see uh, where God was leading. And it's those kind of people in our lives that, that we follow, right? that, are, that have kind of earned themselves as worthy of us following. Um, and as I was flec- reflecting on this, uh, I, I was thinking about in the New Testament uh, that we read about disciples uh, as, as followers of a leader. Uh, You see in the New Testament world, uh, there's a lot of teachers, and a lot of those teachers are referred to uh, as rabbis, just it means teacher, Uh, and their followers are called disciples. All right, so so the rabbi's a teacher, and then there's a group of followers that are coming uh, after them, and like it's really simple, but it's really complex. The disciples don't just learn what the rabbi knows. They actually live with them. Day in and day out. Uh, they live alongside each other. So, so they start to not just know what they know, but act how they act. And live how they live. And they're formed to be more and more like the rabbi. But not just through the giving of knowledge. It's through living alongside each other. Uh, And that is, in a way, what we are all called to as believers in Jesus Christ, that we are supposed to live alongside Jesus in such a way that we slowly start to look more and more like him. Um, Not just in our thoughts, not just in our beliefs, not just in our actions, but, but in how we interact in the world. That there's something about the disciple that reminds the world of the rabbi. And that's the same in our own life. There should be something about us as disciples of Jesus that reminds the world about Jesus. Now, we're not Jesus, and we can never be, but it's almost like there's like this shadow 
language. There's something there. And, and it's present in the lives of all those around us. That there's something in how we act and how we believe and how we behave that reminds people about Jesus. That's where you all say amen. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Very good. You're, you're free to do that at any time. But uh, this is, it's, it's powerful stuff, but it also can be a little bit uh, convicting inside. But what I find encouraging is that there was other teachers that had disciples. So we hear in the New Testament about the Pharisees having disciples. We hear about John the Baptist having disciples. But Jesus' disciples were different. Uh, it was different on how he even chose them and who they were. So the Pharisees, um, they picked a certain group of disciples that were going to follow them. They picked the most educated people they could find. They picked people from a good family, people with a good lineage. They picked these star students and they said, I'm going to take this star student and then I'm going to take them alongside me and, and they're going to be more like me and then they're going to like kind of replace me someday. But, the, but it's, the, it's the top people picking from the next generation of top people. And Jesus flips that over. So Jesus could have picked anyone of any status to be his disciples, to be his followers, anyone of any education. But instead, we read in Matthew chapter 4, uh, verses 18 through 22 and other places, that he picked lowly fishermen named Peter, Andrew, James, and John. Now, one thing we already know is that they're not star students because in those days, if they were star students, they'd still be in school. They're not. They're on the lake. They're fishing. They're learning the trade of their community and, and probably of their own father, um, which means they're not in school anymore. They're, they're the ones who got a certain, a certain uh, place, and, and then they kind of were like weeded out of the process. And here we are in Matthew 4, 18 through 22. It says this, Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee. He saw two brothers, Simon called Peter, and his brother Andrew. They were casting nets into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said. I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. He didn't say, What is your test scores? He didn't say, What's your lineage? He didn't say, are you good enough to be my disciple? He said, follow me. Verse 22, going on from there, he saw two brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called to them, and immediately they left their boat and their father, and they followed him. Then later on, in, in chapter 9, we read of Jesus calling a different disciple, uh, Matthew, who is, who's a tax collector of the people. These are not the star students. 
And I don't know about you, but that is very encouraging to me. As I think about what it means to be a follower of Jesus, what it means to be a believer, this is encouraging. And Jesus called them all in the same way. It was simple. It was just with a simple charge. He said, follow me. And then they followed him. And I feel like that's the same for a lot of us. That it's, not, it's not complicated in its core. But it's also not um, simply this kind of, you know, to decide this is who you want to be in the world. You know, kind of thing. It, it, following, that's, that's journey language. That's talking about living with Jesus, living alongside him, being transformed into him. Sure, you learn. The rabbi is teaching. They're called a teacher. But, but a lot of the learning you do is through the living. And it's the living alongside people. And as they walked with him, they grew. Jesus uh, knew that because of their ordinary status, that, that God's power would be magnified when these people did great things. That it was through their ordinary status that God was able to be glorified. They would follow him for three years. They would live with him. They were taught by him. They learned about God and his kingdom. They learned about obedience and love. They learned by being with him, eating, walking, living. And it was through living life together that Jesus slowly transformed them into these great uh, men of faith that we read about in the Bible. I mentioned Matthew being one of them, and it's from the Gospel of Matthew that we hear that story. Right? When, when he was called, he was not the Gospel writer Matthew. Right? <laughs> when he called, he was the tax collector. And when Jesus was done with him, he was the gospel writer. So in a similar way, Jesus is calling all of us. Calling us with the simple command to follow me. And, and again, I love this journey language because it doesn't say, uh, be perfect first and then follow me. It doesn't say, do you have all your affairs in order? Are, are you exactly uh, who God created you to be? Are, are you fully equipped and fully made and then follow me? It's like, no, follow me now. And on the journey, you will grow. Uh, and to me, that is encouraging news. Amen? Yeah, that was good. You're getting good. You see, part of what they're called to follow him in is, is we get a lot of this language of God's kingdom. That God is doing something new. That there's this kingdom of earth, but God is going to bring about this kingdom of God. And, and these disciples are called to live in kind of both worlds. They are called to live in such a way that they live uh, amongst the kingdom of the world. They see it all around them, it's all, but they're also citizens of the kingdom of God. So they are ambassadors of a new kingdom. And that is part of what God is doing in them and through them. And 
you know, we see this in our prayers. Or if you just think about the Lord's Prayer, uh, maybe we don't reflect on it a whole lot, but you hear this language of, your kingdom come. Your will be done. Where? On earth as it is in heaven. Right? And we get to be a part of that. Like that, that's part of the equipping, is that we get to be a part of that, bringing this new kingdom reality. Um, and you see this, this kingdom of God, it, it's not like an earthly kingdom. Uh, it's not established by power and force and authority. That's how earthly kingdoms work, right? Kingdoms come about because wars happen, and at the end of wars, uh, there's, there's new territory, and, and they build it up, and, and somebody with influence, somebody with power, uh, kind of wills an earthly kingdom to be. But earthly kingdoms also crumble and fall. All of them. I was a history major in college. It's all of them. All right. They crumble and they fall. The kingdom of God will last forever. Amen? So believers are called to be ambassadors of this new kingdom. They are called, like Jesus, to spend time with God in prayer. To participate in God's kingdom around the world by by battling against hate with love. By by fighting against apathy with care and concern, injustice with justice, and despair with hope. That's who we're called to be. That's what it means to be ambassadors of this new kingdom. They're called to pray for their enemies. That is not something that happens in an earthly kingdom. They are called to care for the sick. To reach out to those in need. And to be a friend to the outcast. All of these things are countercultural. All of these things are not who, who culture and, and human society, not just ours, but all of human society, does not call you to be. These are all things that, that if you live it out people are going to look at you and they say, there's something different about that person. And it gives you this opportunity to reflect back that, that all you're doing is reflecting in, in the slightest way who Jesus is. The last part I have here is that being a, a follower of Jesus is about, about having a heart for those who don't know him yet. And I think this can get hard in churches. Um, many of us think about missions, work. We think about spreading the good news of Jesus. And we think about it as something that happens like out there. Something that happens far away. Um, and it does. And, and there's, there's good things there. But it also means that sometimes we're standing in the middle of a field and we don't even recognize that we're supposed to be a part of harvesting that we're supposed to play a role in seeing what's around us and inviting God and saying, God, speak through me into where I am. Um, I've been reading this book, and um, fair warning, I don't agree with it 100%. Um, 
I don't know if that's how you all are. Whenever I read books, I'm like, yeah, it's, it's pretty good. So this isn't me like blanketly endorsing this. But uh, the book is called The Unsaved Christian. Not my favorite title. Um, but what it's trying to get at in the book is um, that there's a lot of people who like culturally claim the name of Christ that don't have a relationship with Jesus. It, it, there's, a, there's a point in a society where there's a lot of people that uh, maybe they've gone to church a long time. Maybe they don't go. But, but somehow, in their own minds, they, they think of themselves as a Christian, but they don't know Christ. They might know about him. They might have knowledge, but they don't have a relationship. And, and this book is saying that our biggest mission field is, is, is the people that are immediately around us. Um, that, that we can think about it being something far away, but that we live in the middle of, of the field um, that is ready for harvest. Now note what I'm not saying. So I'm not saying this is a book about those people. And we all can imagine who those people are who clearly don't have it right because we have it right and, and, and they have issues. This is a book about every church in America. This is a book about... Um, every small group in America. This is a book about all of us, everyone, and, and saying, is your heart um, about Jesus? Or, or do you just know some stuff? Have you just been going to church and you're able to like walk through the motions? Um, and, and where this book uh, encourages us uh, is to think about others around us and where their, their faith is, so to speak. And the reason I use the quotes um, is because if your faith isn't in the saving work of Jesus Christ, then you're just as lost as anyone else. If your faith is not in, in who Jesus was and what he did, and, it, and it's about some uh, overarching you know, other thing, then, then you're just as lost. And, and we have people around us who sit there, that they have a faith that's more about morals. Or they have a faith that's more about ethics. Or, or maybe it's about church attendance. Or maybe it's about being a good person. Or maybe it's about uh, simply believing in God. I've heard that a lot. I've talked to people that be like, well, I believe in God. Okay. That's good. <laughs> you know, uh, but do you know Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior? You know, believing in God is one thing. Believing in God does not save. Maybe their faith, so to speak, is about family heritage um, or traditions or, or kind of this idea of making Jesus their co-pilot or their like good luck charm. So this is what I'm talking about. This is uh, the kind of people, and they, they are all around us. And if people don't know Jesus Christ and what he did for them, to restore them in, into a right relationship with God, then the reality, they're just as lost as any atheist or non-believer. And, and that can be a hard reality, um, but this is a big mission field. 
And, and I believe this is part of what it means to be a believer, to answer this question that's on the screen of the mission of a believer is to reach out with that good news. So I'm going to spend the rest of, the, of my time here, and it's uh, not a ton, but I, I want to talk about some of the details of how that works because I think a lot of us can be like, yeah, that makes sense, but then we don't feel like we know how to do that. We don't feel like we have any, any equipping uh, to be able to do that. So I'm going to point us to three uh, primary things. And if you're a note taker, uh, these would be the three to write down. If you're not, don't worry about it. Memorize it. Uh, number one, we need to have a refusal in our own life to be in denial about the state of, of people around us or even our own state uh, with, with Jesus. Number two, we need to have gospel clarity. We need to know the gospel of Jesus Christ so clear that we can, that we can sense when it's not uh, what somebody's presenting. That we can sense when it's not what someone believes. So we need gospel clarity. And third, we need boldness to speak the truth in love. And if we don't have one of those, um, then, then again, we just kind of sit in a mission field uh, and, and not even realize that, that people are around us that need to know him. So number one, refusal to be in denial. We need to have the emotional discipline within ourselves to accept the reality that just because we are close to someone doesn't mean that they know Jesus. Uh, that just because uh, maybe somebody was raised in the same religious climate as you doesn't mean that they know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And I think the major uh, hindrance that, that we are given as believers to this is, is simply just being in denial. I mean, that, that is a wonderful tool of, of Satan, of, of the deceiver, of the liar, um, is just to leave us in denial about the people around us, because then we, we, we don't reach out. So again, what I'm not talking about is I'm not talking about judging other people around us and, and seeing if, uh, if their actions or something live up to some moral code that we've made of what it means uh, to be a believer. What I'm saying is we need to have the ability to, to kind of look into someone's heart and see where they're at. They, they might be on a scale that they might have a lot of work to do in order to shine Christ's light, uh, but how are they at step one? Or are they not? Now I admit um, that I don't really want to do that. That sounds emotionally taxing. That sounds very difficult to look and, and without judgmental eyes to look at people around me and to say, do they get it or not? Because part of me, my human side, part of me doesn't want the answer. It, it can be easier to live in denial, but if we're going to reach out to people, we need to, to push back against that denial um, on our own part. Number two, we need gospel clarity. Um, 
You know, it can be dangerous to define something by what it's not, but I think it can be helpful right here. So, what the gospel of Jesus Christ, or the good news of Jesus Christ, is not, is the gospel is not church attendance. Amen? You can say amen after each one of these. That would be wonderful. The gospel is not church attendance. The gospel is not uh, be a sincere and good person. Amen. The gospel is not simply believing that there is a God. Amen. The gospel is not heritage. Like, I can't, I'm not saved because grandma went to church. Right? Uh, it sounds silly to say, but I think people believe it. I mean, people will say that they're Christians because generation, like because they're not anything else. <laughs> well, of course I am, because I know I'm not Muslim, or I know I'm not Jewish, so I'm Christian. The gospel is not about ethnicity. It's not. The gospel is not about making Jesus your co-pilot or making Jesus your good luck charm. Amen. We need to be clear on our own understanding about what the gospel is. The gospel is not about our own personal efforts. Amen. It's not about our own perceived goodness. It's not about religious activities that we're involved in. Um, It's about Jesus Christ. It's about Jesus Christ being our Lord and our Savior of our lives. Number three, boldness and speaking the truth in love. Uh, the, the term for this group is called cultural Christians. That, that's what they say uh, in, in some of the reading nowadays. So reaching cultural Christians requires a boldness and a courage, um, but it's, it's a different kind of courage. Um, of course, you need to have a lot of courage if you're going to go into a foreign country, especially one that opposes Christianity. You're going to have to have a lot of courage to go as a missionary uh, and to bring that. But the kind of courage I'm talking about is the kind of courage that um, pushes aside what other people will think. It's the kind of courage that says, I'm not going to hold some social standing and and how people view me as higher than people knowing Jesus. It's the kind of courage that says, I'm going to speak boldly about Jesus, even if there's potential social consequences uh, to what that would mean. So maybe, just maybe, uh, you have a friend or a relative uh, who would claim to be a Christian, but, but knows there's something different about you. Here's what they think. They think that you're just more into this Christianity thing than they are. That's what all the research shows. They study this like across the country. And, and that's people's answer is that they have friends and they have relatives that are more into church than they are. They're more into Christianity or are just more into this kind of thing. But then when they ask people about what they believe, um, what they're talking about is friends who have a sincere relationship with Jesus Christ. And I, and I mourn inside because uh, these are friends. These are people that are close to them. These are people that could speak into their life. They're they're around. It's not like they're people that are disconnected. Uh, They're there. 
I'm getting ahead of myself. You can laugh, that's fine. <laughs> it's our job uh, to let them know who Jesus is. Uh, Jesus will give you words to speak uh, if you pray for it. I, I pray for it all the time. I don't know if you ever thought about stuff that pastors walk alongside families with. Uh, maybe some of you have, probably most of you haven't. I go through none of that asking for my own words to speak. Um, there's no words to speak when, when someone has passed away and, and, and you're comforting loved ones. Uh, there's no words that come from me. Anyway, there's words to speak, but they come from the Spirit. And, and, and that's kind of the same here. Like we go into this, and if we go in with our own intellect and our own ability, then we're going to feel like we fall short. But if we go in relying on God, saying, God, give me words to speak. I just want to, I just want to glorify you uh, and how I talk about you in, in my friend's life. Uh, I, I believe that God will, will give you that. So we need to shy away from these conversations and how they often go. Sometimes you have conversations that are about having a strict moral code. Or you end up having conversations uh, that are about uh, ethics or church attendance or this kind of thing. And sometimes those, those are well-meaning. Like we, we want people to go to church, right? So we reach out and be like, oh, you know, we haven't, they haven't been to church in many, many years. Um, but going to church is not the solution. We want them to know Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior. Amen? And, and I think part of what hampers us, again, I talked about this gospel clarity part, it's, is if somebody were to actually go to you, or if I asked you to turn to your neighbor, and I won't, so don't get nervous, but if I asked you to turn to your neighbor, and I wanted one of you to say, what is the gospel of Jesus Christ? What is this good news that you hear about at church? Um, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands, but like, how, how many of you be able to do it? It's, it's heavy, right? You're like, I don't know if I have the words to exactly. Some of you are like, yes, uh, this is like my faith tradition growing up, and we like did this in Sunday school. And other ones were like, I had no faith tradition growing up, and I'm not even sure what Sunday school is. <laughs> um, and, and here it is. So, in your bulletin insert, uh, this is not perfect, this is just me writing, but on the back of it, I wrote... And I'll, I'll read it to you here. I wrote what the gospel of Jesus Christ is. And I think it's four sentences long. Um, but it's part of that clarity. That, like, this is what we need to know. All right? This is what we want people to know. God made us in his image. To know him and to be in a relationship with him. But we sinned, turning from our holy and perfect God, and in so doing, tied ourselves to a new master. In his great love, God became a man in Jesus, lived a perfect life, and died on the cross, thus breaking the bondage to sin and death, and freeing us to be in a right relationship with God. Amen. Jesus rose again from the dead, having conquered death. Amen. He now calls us to repent of our sins and to trust in Christ alone for our forgiveness. 
If we repent of our sins, trusting in Christ, we are born again into a new life and eternal life with God. Amen. That is the good news of Jesus Christ. That's what we want our loved ones to know. Right? That's what we need our neighbors to know. And, and that's what we need each other to know. That, that is the core of it. Now, as we walk with Christ, uh, there's journey that happens and Christ works on us. But this is the basic. This is, this is the core of it. So uh, if that is just helpful for you, stick it, stick it in your Bible, bring it home, keep it, pray over it before you talk to people. This is the core of what it is all about. Uh, and I think sometimes we, we can muddy the water with other things. And we need to give people clarity. Take the mud out. Right? Give them just the clarity of what it is. Because Christianity without the gospel of Jesus Christ is not Christianity at all. Amen?